Welcome back to Second Look. Today we'll hear a roundtable discussion from Pastor Josh Preston, Director of Shepherding Resources Lauren Maddox, and Senior Pastor George Robertson, where they discuss the tension of seeking the peace and prosperity of a city that is sometimes dangerous. Listen in for an honest conversation about loving our neighbors in turbulent times. Hey, and thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm Josh Preston, and I'm an assistant pastor here at Second Prez. I'm joined by Lauren Maddox, our director of Shepherding Resources, and a licensed professional counselor, and our senior pastor, George Robertson. Um, it's, it's our goal here at Second to equip you, the saints, uh, for your daily ministry in your lives. And to that end, we want to develop resources that are touching on some of the felt needs that you have as you go about that work. Uh, and so the title of this episode is called Finding Courage While Seeking Peace. And that, cap that title is really meant to capture two realities that um, I know we all and many of you are facing on a daily basis lately. Uh, the first comes from Jeremiah 29 where we're called as Christians to seek the peace of the city. Uh, that's something we care deeply about here at Second Prez, where our mission is to reimagine the church and the city according to Scripture and to repair what we find broken. Um, I know many of you go about that work in, in inspiring ways every single day, uh, in ways that are encouraging to us as a staff all the time. Uh, even as we press into that work of, of seeking the peace, the, the, the shalom, the, the well-being of the city, we're confronted with another reality right lately as we see a rise in violent crime in our city. Um, we feel perhaps more than ever before this need for courage as we go about that work. And so as we seek peace, we're trying to find courage and, and look for it in the right places. And so we certainly don't pretend to have all the answers for you today, but what we wanna do is be good listeners by empathizing with you with some of the things that um, we've heard you express, uh, offer some hope, some inspiration, encouragement from scripture, and then also some practical considerations as you go about this work of seeking the peace in your city. So I wanna start, um, if I could, with you, Lauren. Um, as a, as a li licensed counselor, could you just help us to understand what are some of the unique mental health challenges that we're facing right now? And, um, particularly what are some of the groups that might be uh, particularly affected at this time? Yeah, absolutely. We know that when we're faced with situations where we are in danger or when those whom we love are in danger, our God-given response is fear. And that's a, that's a healthy fear. It activates our fight and flight response so that we are activated so that we can protect ourselves and protect those whom we love, those who are more vulnerable than we are. The trouble is when that fight or flight response is activated for a pro prolonged period of time. And this can happen in a couple of ways. It can happen when we are actually in physical danger for longer periods of time, for prolonged periods of time. And that certainly is the reality for many in our city who live and work and play in areas that are dangerous. Um, we certainly see that in other countries, like in Ukraine, for example, they for over a year now have had to live in that fight or flight response to keep themselves physically safe. The other time that that can happen is when we're not actually in danger. Maybe we've had an event or a series of events where 
we've been unsafe or we've been in danger, someone we love has been in danger. And then even after those events are over, we stay in that fight or flight response. I often use the analogy of a gummy bear versus a grizzly bear situation, right? A gummy bear is not very threatening, right? Pretty manageable um, what to do with a gummy bear. A grizzly bear, however, is not. But sometimes we take a gummy bear level situation and treat it as though a grizzly bear is coming at us, as though we are in mortal danger, even though the situation is, is pretty manageable. And the difficulty lately for many is that the places where we live and work and play, we used to have a reasonable sense of safety, right? We could go to the grocery store, the gas station, a restaurant, shopping, for example, and we, we felt relatively safe. But that safety for many has been taken away, and yet we still have to live and work and play in those places amidst our fear. And the reality is that there are some communities that have lived in that reality for, for some time, resulting in environments that are really trauma-inducing. And so we know that the longer that we stay in that prolonged fight or flight state, the greater impact it has on our mental health. So those who are more vulnerable may be those who have had experiences where they've been unsafe or been in unsafe situations many times before. And we know that the longer we're in that prolonged state, the, the greater impact it does have on our mental health, our physical health, and our spiritual health. Because when we are in fight or flight, we start to have difficulty sleeping. Our anxiety increases. We have physical problems. And we know that from the medical community and from God's word, how important rest is for us, for our mental health, our physical health and our spiritual health. And that fight or flight response really prevents us from that rest that we, our bodies and our souls really need. That's really helpful, makes perfect sense. Thanks for uh, helping us to even articulate that and connect some of those experiences we've been having. Uh, George, I'd like to pose the next question to you. One of the uh, I think tensions that uh, even me personally and, and many that I've ministered to have been wrestling with is this calling to seek the peace of the city in which we live combined with the responsibility as spouses, as parents, as friends to think about the protection and the safety of our loved ones. Um, or asking questions like, at what point do I decide that it's no longer safe to live here for my, me and my family? Uh, when there might be other options. Uh, could you help us to wrestle with that in, in a biblically informed kind of way and think about that wisely? Well, I think you have, <laughs> you've given the topic sentence that's just perfect. We have to wrestle with it biblically. Um, and, 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 and in the full recognition that we're living in a state of tension. As long as we're in this world, in a fallen world, before the coming of the kingdom, we're always going to be living in tension. And we've got to wrestle with Scripture and how it applies to us in our moment. But I would, I would I'd put out some biblical principles that don't always rise immediately to mind. Uh, and the the first one is uh, that the Christian life is a matter of calling. Everything is a matter of calling, a calling from the Lord. 
but that's not our usual default starting point as human beings and much less as Americans. <clears throat> um, our starting point is usually what do I want or what is best for me, what is comfortable, what is the safest. Uh, that's the way we typically uh, choose where we want to live. We move to a new city and our first choice is what is the most comfortable place I can live at usually just beyond what I can afford. Um, and that's our starting point as opposed to uh, the way God has typically called his people, which is I want you to come follow me in this place. Uh, so throughout scripture, people are called by God and then called to go to a certain place or called to stay in a certain place. Abraham, leave Abram, leave your city where all your extended family are, all your goods are settled in nicely, follow me. He went as far as Haran, about halfway, stopped. The call came again, follow me all the way to the promised land, which wasn't very promising. Uh, but God gave him a call, not just to follow metaphorically, but it involved a place. Uh, you're called to follow me in a, to a place and in a place. And that's consistent throughout the book. And, and then when, when God's people tend to hunker down, God moves them out. By Genesis, Genesis 11, they've hunkered down in Babel and they said, we're not gonna go anywhere. We're gonna build a tower. We're gonna, we're gonna preserve ourselves right here. We'll invent a different kind of God if we need to. One that says we should stay here. And what did God do? No, your, your mission is to take the light to the nations. It's always been the, the mission of God's people. You're to take the light to the darkness. And so I'm going to confuse your language. I'm going to cause it to be impossible for you to work together because I'm going to move you on. You're going to fulfill that mission. Same way with the disciples. They're behind the closed doors or they're in Jerusalem. And it's either God calling them to the mission field or moving them out by persecution to go where they're supposed to go. Of course, they were disobedient in the Old Testament. That's why they went into exile. But God, God often says, I carried you into exile. And the passage you quoted from Jeremiah 29 is when they're in exile in Babylon. And it's, it's not that the whole time they're there, God is saying, I'm going to rub your noses in this foreign place. I have a mission for you here. You should have been a light to the nations already. You've been living in darkness. I'm going to take you into exile to discipline you and restore you to faithfulness. But while you're there, you're also going to fulfill my mission. You're living in a city that hates you. You're not welcomed here. But I want you to live in defiant hope. Marry, uh, plant gardens, build houses. Uh, you know, building houses, you're never going to get your equity back on that house. You're probably not going to live. It's only good for 70 years in your next generation. But, but build the house there. Plant the gardens there. 
marry, live fully in that place. That's the, that's the first biblical principle I'd say that God, we have to ask, what are you calling me to do? Where are you calling me to do it? And I have the expectation that it's not always going to be safe and comfortable. In fact, it's never, it's never going to be safe or comfortable because we're living in a dangerous world that's, it has spiritual dangers that we may not even be aware of. Hmm. Um, having said all of that, coming back to, to Lauren's point and, and also having the faces of my parishioners in front of me who have been very traumatized by what has happened to them very personally uh, and, and feel the need to move or do something else or start over. None has, I mean, some have, are making that decision. And I haven't said to any one of them, you're unspiritual, you're not, it's, it's, a, it's an individual calling and the biblical principle there is an application of the, of the sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. And in our catechism, we have, we have the question is, what are the duties required in this commandment? What are, the, what are the sins forbidden? And then the implications are teased out from scripture relative to both those questions. And the, the shorter catechism says about the sixth commandment, what, what is what is uh, required, what is required is all lawful endeavors for the preserving of our life and our neighbors. Hmm. All lawful endeavors. So the opposite of killing is proactively preserving life. And it's not just for myself, but for my neighbor. And later it includes self-defense. Well, you know, they're the, they're, and, and that preservation of life is not just, um, you know, putting your dukes up when somebody's uh, tagged, but it's also emotional self-defense. That there are times when you have been so traumatized uh, in your uh, emotionally that it's your positive duty to seek rest. That's what you were saying, Lloyd. Positive duty to seek rest for the preserving of your life for the long run. Not that you'll stay in that place of retreat forever, but even, you know, the warriors have to be taken off the front line, put it into the back line for R&R &R for all, so that they can be even more effective. Um, so that would wrap up by saying that how, how do you figure that out? Well, you, yes, it's reading your own Bible and praying, but it's also working that out in community, the community of the church, community of Christian friends and Christian counselors saying, what do you think, what biblical principles do you think apply here? What do you think I should be doing? Uh, please speak into me because sometimes in, as, as Christians we think, that the way you discern God's will, maybe I'm, maybe this is just revealing of my own dysfunction, but the, the way you discern God's will is what is the worst, most dangerous, miserable thing that you can do? Oh, well, that must be what God is calling me to do. And you need other people in your life to say, 
actually, that's works righteousness. And here is what we see as your friends and loved ones as, as maybe where you should go or how you, you should stay here and here are the things maybe you need to do while you're staying here. Very helpful. Thank you, George. Helps us to reframe uh, thoughts about calling, uh, remember uh, what we're called to and live in the freedom that we have in crisis. Uh, and remember that uh, the danger and the dysfunction of our city doesn't uh, militate against our ability to be faithful as Christians. Uh, Lauren, I'd like to direct the next question to you. One of the questions that uh, men especially are having right now, and this is not to say that men are not experiencing fear because we are, uh, but we do feel a deep responsibility to to protect and to serve and to love our sisters well. And um, I wonder if you could just share what are some unhelpful things that we could avoid in endeavoring to do that, and then some some helpful things to do to help our sisters. Yeah, absolutely. So I will answer that question by saying it's best to ask the question. So. Ask your wife, your sister, your mom, your female friends, what is most helpful to them in their vulnerability? Certainly women in general right now are feeling more vulnerable. A lot of the person-to-person -person crime that we're experiencing in our city is directed towards women. But not all women are experiencing their vulnerability in the same ways. Now, certainly we're seeing some trends in how women are responding and um, it's certainly important to look at those, but it's best not to assume that the women in your life are responding according to the trends. It's best to ask the question and then really listen to the answer. Um, oftentimes we ask a question, all of us do this, um, and we don't really listen to what that person has to say and what the perspective of that individual, in this case, woman, is experiencing and how she is articulating how she would best be cared for and protected. And then I would say, after you've asked the question and really listened to the answer, then follow that up with action. So if a woman is expressing to you how she might feel cared for in her vulnerability, then make your best reasonable effort to make that happen. Maybe it's not just you that's responding, maybe you're engaging somebody else in that response, but follow that conversation up with a response. Whether that, again, is taking action yourself, maybe that's just simply following up on the conversation, letting that woman know that you're still with her and praying with and for her. Hmm. Lauren, we were talking about this a few weeks ago and you, uh, you shared a specific example of an interaction you had with a neighbor who really encouraged you in a time when you were undergoing a lot of stress. I wonder if you could share that with us. Sure. So for those of you who are listening and are um, in the Memphis area, you will remember the ice storm of February of 2022, so about a year ago. And at the time, I lived in a, in a very small one-story home with three humongous trees on my property. And really, every time the wind blew or there was a storm, I was anxious that one of those limbs was going to just demolish my home. And on that Thursday morning, the power went out and the limbs were falling. And one on one side of my home, the limb 
a large limb fell in my neighbor's car and really totaled it actually ended up. And then on the other side, a limb fell on my neighbor's house and took out half of her um, roof. And then they were falling all over my yard. So I was panicked and running around trying to pack a bag because I knew soon based on how things were happening that I was about to be trapped in my home, not just be able to leave my home, but my, my car was about to be trapped in the driveway. And so I called my next door neighbor whose home was devastated by the limb from my tree. And I, and I was calling her to one, apologize uh, for the limb and also check on her. She's also a single woman and wanted to know how she was doing. And she could tell that I was totally in panic mode. And as I was apologizing and asking her what her plan was, she stopped me and she said, Lauren, it's okay. She said, nothing that happens today will result in our eternal peril. Now, I wish I could say that those words stopped my panic and everything was okay. It really didn't. But those are words that have really stuck with me in many circumstances that have transpired over the past year because I really long to have that type of perspective, even in the face of physical danger that we were experiencing. She had this peace that that God was with her and that her eternal hope, our eternal hope was not going to change whether a limb fell or it didn't. And so that has really, like I said, stuck with me and been something that Lord has used to used to remind me in times of a fear and panic um, that he remains with us. Yeah. Thanks for sharing that. As a uh, fellow warrior, that resonates <laughs> quite deeply. Um, and really the first thing you did was apologize that your limb fell on your neighbor's house. That's so Lauren. It's true. It's true. Um, another tension we're wrestling with George is that of the fact that we serve a sovereign God, but also that we're responsible to make wise and prudent decisions. So as we think about making those decisions for our own personal safety, uh, I wonder if you could help direct us a little bit. Yeah, I'd, I, I wanted to, uh, I, I brought this quote with me from <clears throat> a fourth century Christian leader. Um, so this is uh, probably on the, the end of the Christian era of under Constantine and Christians are starting to think of their, of their uh, safety. And he says, if a trial with other people comes upon you in the place where you live. Don't leave that place when the trial comes. Wherever you go, you'll find that what you're running from is ahead of you. So stay until the trial is over so that if you end up leaving, no offense will be caused and you'll not be, bring distress to others who live in the same neighborhood. Another, I, I have another quote here from the 12th century. This is Anselm. Uh, who compared a restless believer to a tree that can't thrive because it's frequently transplanted or disturbed. If he often moves from place to place on his own whim or remaining in one place is frequently agitated by hatred of it, he never achieves stability with roots of love. My, my first answer then is, um, is one of the greatest 
acts of self-defense is establishing deep roots in a community. And I've learned a lot of that this recently from you, Lauren, who, um, uh, whom I have um, also learning from you, learned to ask you about uh, how to be of comfort to other people. And you've shared with me how important, how critically important the church has been to you and is to you. My daughters have said a similar thing. And meaning not only the regularity of church worship, gathered worship, but a ch church community where you have fathers and mothers and sisters and brothers who have, who are at different places in their journey and who are able to say to us in when our faith is weak, this is not your eternal peril. Mm -hmm. Or I lived through World War, I lived through the Vietnam War or not so many World War II in, anymore, but I've lived through those wars and I can tell you it's, it's going to be okay. Um, it, it, so that rootedness, that belonging in a community um, is uh, 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 the first act of self-defense. It's, it's, um, it's putting ourselves in that place where the ordinary means of grace, prayer, our prayers, the prayers of others, the teaching of the word, understanding it in, in uh, ordinary conversation as well as from the pulpit, a, a belonging, a security, the, the, the mystery of what happens to us in worship by the sacraments. Uh, there's, no, there's no replacement for that. And I think these old saints were, were on to that, that not only is it, you know, don't jump and run every time there's a threat but actually, if that is your first response, you're only going to move from one place of felt weakness to another place of actual weakness. You're going to be even more vulnerable. Um, I don't think I have to specify the, the, the other things that are matters of prudence, you know, taking self-defense classes and watching how you get out of your cars and so forth. Um, I've recently been kind of embarrassed by some of the women in my life where I've started mansplaining, you know, make sure that you look over your shoulder and, you know, watch you when you get out of the car door. And my daughter's saying, we've been doing that all our lives. You know, we have to. I think, though, what I would want to say as a pastor is back to that sixth commandment, that catechism, that proactively taking those, um, making those steps of learning self-defense, putting in security systems, asking people to walk you to your car, uh, those are not uh, manifestations of weak faith. That's a positive fulfillment of a Christian duty. I'll give another example. We have such, I mean, we have such great people here and people who listen to the word preached and want to apply it. And one of our, <clears throat> one young woman in our church uh, wrote me uh, early on when some of the, the violence was really 
started to increase. And she said, this past Sunday you were preaching on justice and mercy and showing justice and mercy to the, to the least. And I was coming out of Kroger and this man came right up to me and put his hands on my shoulder and, and started asking me for, for uh, money. And she said, I pushed him away and ran to my car um, and didn't answer him. But now I feel guilty about that. Was, did I not do what you said? Did, you, was I, was, did I not practice justice and mercy? There's a sense of, I really appreciate the, the sensitivity of wanting to do God's will, but I tried to affirm her as quickly as possible that you did everything, everything about that was just and merciful because you have a positive duty of mercy to yourself in protection. That man had violated your space. He's yelling at her too. And I said, another act, it would be equally just if you reported his actions so that he didn't do that in a more violent way to somebody else. But we can be, you know, we can, we can get into this attitude of, uh, you know, to, to, to be self-preservative in any way uh, is, is, a, is a flight from faith, but it's, it's not. Yeah. You've talked about some of the very encouraging responses of our people, and one that I've heard over and over in the midst of this is people asking the question, what can I do? Uh, we, we wrestle with these inner tensions, but we also want to get practical and, and use our hands to be part of the solution. And I love that question because it seeks not only to lament, but also to be part of the solution. Uh, I wonder if you could just point us to a couple practical things we can uh, start thinking about to, to do that. Well, the, the, my first reaction is going to sound churchy, but I don't mean it that way. I've been convicted by it lately. The very first and most practical thing we can do is to pray. And to pray not only individually, but in groups. I, I tell you, I, I was reminded of that recently. I was with, I'm, I'm in regular meetings with city leaders from different walks of life. And I was in a meeting recently in someone's home and there were government leaders and a judge and a prosecutor and a ministers and business people. And we were, we were asking this question, what can we do? <clears throat> and we're all Christians, but there was a point that we reached when we all sort of at the same time got hopeless. And a lot of tears shed and what, and, and then we all sp spontaneously moved to prayer. It's embarrassing that we didn't, when I mean, we opened the meeting with prayer, but the real heartfelt pleading prayer came at the end when we recognized, we've got some good ideas, some practical things we can do, but, uh, you know, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who try to build it. So the most practical thing we do, and it's the last thing we tend to think of. And to pray specifically in this situation that the Lord gets a name for himself. 
Our, our city is known in particular by our African-American forefathers, the real heroes in the civil rights movement from here. Memphis is called Calvary because of Dr. King's death. They don't, they don't mean that he, I mean, they know what Calvary for Jesus is, but it's, a, it's an imitation of Calvary, that, that one man's death changed for good so much of other people's lives. And I was, I was meeting with another African-American leader uh, a couple of years ago, and she said, you know, we call it Calvary, but she said, I'm praying that it's known as resurrection. That the, that, that the darkness that we are experiencing, praying that this, this crucifixion that we're going through, this would be an opportunity for the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ to shine the more brightly to the whole world. That's what we, we want to pray for. Mm -hmm. Then I, would, then I would go way down the line from that to other things that sometimes people are not thinking about. I mean, it, you know, it's prayer. It's being involved in the Christian community. Really on the ground. Uh, several of us pastors have urged our people to, to do the old neighborhood watch thing. And we've, we've organized one in our neighborhood. I didn't organize it. Another person on our, our street organized it. And, you know, it's, 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 a, it's a great prudent thing that she's, you know, she's told us about the kinds of cameras you can put on, their, on, on your front door. And, um, and uh, we were able to, 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 to uh, I mean, the police arrested a carjacker as a result of piecing together this footage recently, and just watching out for each other, getting the the, the phone numbers and names of people in the, and that's that's been a great thing. The other thing, though, however, has been we we know each other's neighbors. Finally, to our embarrassment, it took this to get us to introduce ourselves and. Now the people are using the same kind of channel that we're supposed to be sharing dangerous things about. They're sharing recipes and whatever, you know. We may need to <laughs> create a separate, separate channel. This is a fun channel. This is the security channel. Uh, but in conjunction with our parishes, this is a, this is another great thing that we can do of taking the church into the neighborhoods a very practical way. And it's, it provides uh, it, it could be a great um, deterrent. The the police that we've talked to are very appreciative of it. Uh, they they are able when when our little neighborhood watch group reported to them we had a carjacking and we had uh, some thefts on our street. They asked us. They said, "Would you like to sign up for?" Um, extended pat patrols or a dedicated patrol, I forgot what the ex actual name is, but they, they added an extra patrol, you know, for a certain period of time. They weren't resistant or resentful. They were, they were glad to have other helps in the city. That'd be the one, another thing I would urge people to think about. Yeah. One of the things that uh, the Lord has taught me through all this is that uh, courage 
finding courage is not something that is uh, an, an ape thing that some people possess and some don't. Um, courage is based on trusting in who God has revealed himself to be and uh, what he's promised to be for us. And so I wanted to close that way by just asking each of you, we could start with you, Lauren, um, what is one way that God has revealed himself to you and his character recently that we could in encourage our people with? Sure. So many of the women here at Second have been studying the book of Deuteronomy this year. And the book of Deuteronomy certainly tells us a lot of things about who God is. But one of the things that I think has been really powerful is, and I'm going to cheat and use two attributes of God, um, both protector and provider. So the um, the Israelites are really vulnerable in this time in the wilderness, right? That 40 years, they're not only vulnerable from the environmental forces around them, right? They're in the wilderness, but also they're surrounded by people groups that are way stronger, um, humanly speaking, than they. And so, and yet the Lord protects them. He also provides for their every need for food and and shelter. And, you know, we even know in Deuteronomy 29.5 that he even keeps their shoes and their clothing from, from wearing out. And so certainly we don't have those same exact promises from God about our shoes or our clothes. And, but the idea that, that God is with them and um, it's not because of anything that they've done particularly um, fabulously, right? It's because God has promised that he will be with them and that he is the one that, that fulfills his promises um, regardless of, um, how many times that we fall um, on ours. So that's something that's been really encouraging to me. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I, I like the way you said that, Josh. It, it, I, I do think courage is a choice. If somebody is naturally courageous, I think there's something mentally wrong with them. I submit to the counselor about that. But uh, And the Bible doesn't appeal to people who are naturally courageous as opposed to the others who are naturally uncourageous cowardly. It just, it commands us, be courageous. But it never does without the accompanying promise, I am with you. Um, so the attribute of God is, is his eminence. I th and it's really the same that, that, um, that uh, Lauren is talking about, that, that this, his withness his being with us in this place that, and he is literally with us. Jesus said, I'm not leaving you comfortless. I'm, I'm dedicating a third person of the Trinity to you inside you that I would be with you. And I am with you always to make you strong and courageous. I, I, I love that image in Joshua one where he says, uh, only be strong and courageous for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Um, <clears throat> he says, he says five times in that brief passage, maybe five through nine, wherever that is in chapter one, but five times, be strong, be strong, be very strong, be strong, very courageous. Five times. Two times he says, I'm with you. But the beauty of it to me is he says it at the beginning and he says it at the end. And I see it as his arms around us. I am with you. Be strong 
and courageous. And you always see that pattern through Scripture. You never see him telling people, be courageous without saying, I am with you. Um, so uh, uh, that has been my, that's my only, um, that's, that, that's my only comfort that uh, if he, you know, if I had this, if I had this image of God up in heaven saying, it's going to be okay down there, you know, I've, I'm behind you, way behind you, but I'm behind, but no, I'm with you. And it's not just anybody who's with me, it's the sovereign king of the universe who has already written the end of history, who says, I'm going to win, who says, even if you die, I got you. Um, nothing can take you from my hand because you're in the hand of Jesus and you're doubly enclosed in the hand of the Heavenly Father. Really appreciate both of you taking the time to talk about this. I've learned a lot from you and it's, it's been a joy to work on this with you. I just want to let uh, all of you know as our people that we as a staff consider it a privilege to get to walk alongside you in the midst of this, even as we wrestle with it ourselves. And um, we also have another resource available. It's an article on our website uh, called A Letter to My Daughters from Pastor George. It's written as an open letter to his daughters to ultimately point them to uh, God's fatherly care for them and encourage you to check that out. Thanks so much for joining.